Hello, I'm Letitia McClough. And I'm Andrew O'Brien. And you're listening to The The Virgin Virgin Gardener Gardener Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Virgin Gardener podcast, the podcast for people who love gardens and plants. Yes, no matter how big or small your garden, you've come to the right place, so pour yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy the show. And today we have decided to get really specific and delve deep into the utter loveliness of one of our favourite plants, the pelagonium. Andrew, can you kick this one off and tell us what you love about these plants? Yeah, of course. I think for most people, it's definitely the flowers that they love, and there's such a fantastic variety of shapes and colours. But to be honest, for me, it's two things. Firstly, the scent, and I don't mean the scent of the flowers, but of the stems mm. and the leaves, which, like like a lot of herb plants, they're kind of full of these volatile oil compounds that really get mobilised in warm weather and produce such a characteristic mm. smell. I don't really mean just the scented leaf varieties, which are obviously really well known, and I know you mm. love, don't you? <laughs> and I love those too, but I've got a childhood memory of the zonal pelagoniums, which we had at, at home, and we used to call those wrongly geraniums. Mm-hmm. Um, and their leaves have a kind of really musky, astringent smell, which I didn't like when I was a child, <laughs> yeah. but now I really love. Yeah, I, it's a bit like tomato. I always thought Do you they know smelled what, a bit like bad breath when I was a child. Uh, <laughs> oh, crumbs. I, actually, I wouldn't mind if my bad breath smelled like that. I know, but, but I've kind of become accustomed to them, and now they smell wonderful to me. <laughs> but I do remember distinctly as a child thinking, yuck. Isn't it strange? Yes, it's- <laughs> And I had the same with tomato um, foliage, really? as, tomato plant foliage as well, and I love that now as well. Which is Weird, just it? divine. It's like that bitter taste. <laughs> so, but that takes me completely back to my sort of childhood in, in North London. So that's really evocative yeah. for me. And then the other thing is that they kind of completely make you feel like a gardening yes. god because you can snap a bit off, which is the kind of thing, as people will know by now, I do quite regularly, um, and shove it straight into the soil and it grows a new plant without you having to Amazing. Kind of worry about Amazing. it. Amazing, aren't they wonderful? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm geeking out completely here, but pelagoniums are one of my gardening geek areas I'm afraid. <laughs> anyway what about you? How, uh... Well I think it's safe to say that the pelagonium was my gateway drug into perennials. Is it okay to say that? Oh yeah <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, I was living in a flat and I just had a balcony and very little plant know-how and I remember that first year of kind of experimentation and by that I mean basically watching plants die one after the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but basically the pretty much the only thing left standing were my collection of scented leaf pelagoniums and they were actually i remember they were sent to me in a box by none other than fibrex nurseries so there you go ah fibrex (laughs) now fibrex they've won countless gold medals at chelsea and um, awards are plenty at flower shows across the country for their show-stopping displays not only of pelagoniums with which they have the national collection of but also of ferns and of ivies too and when I say countless, I kind of mean that exactly, because I've asked them before, what precisely is your medal tally? And no one on the nursery can actually Brilliant. remember. Anyway, we are so thrilled today to have with us the Princess of Pellies herself, Heather Goddard Key. Heather's a passionate plantswoman coming from a nursery background herself near me and Kent before marrying into, shall we call it the Fibrex dynasty? Does that have a good ring to it? Yeah, I like that. Yeah? That sounds good. <laughs> okay, that's good. Now then, Heather, before we get going, I seem to remember hearing a rumour that you met your husband Richard after nicking a bit of moss off his stand at a flower show. Can you clear that one up for us? 
Yes, I didn't nick it. I borrowed it. There you go. <laughs> and I and I have to say, I did think that it belonged to somebody else. So it was just a massive misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it worked. Was, I have to say, it, it worked. Yeah, Absolutely. No, it was really, really good moss. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the best moss here? You know, um, Usually Richard, actually. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, he well, is very protective with his moss. I very I can testify to that. Well, it's very, very wonderful. It was a a serendipitous piece of moss. It um, was. And you got into pelagoniums because before that, what was it? What were you doing before that? I was into southern hemisphere plants before that, mainly Australian and South African. Um, And I suppose you could say I still am because I do still Mm. grow them here at the nursery. We have a large collection of bottle brushes. We have a lot of South African shrubs. So it's not... You say I get into, I got into pelagoniums through meeting Richard. No, I had to learn about the pelagoniums and I had to learn about the ferns and the ivies on the job, basically, because mm. Rich and I front the nursery at the shows. And so it was a real hands-on, get on with it, learn about the plants, learn the growing conditions. And um, for the last 10 years... It's just been a massive learning curve for me. So I've taken everything on and I I love it all. I don't have any favourites. You know, I love doing the big pelagonium displays. I love doing the big fern and ivy displays. And Mm. I still love growing my own um, little specialist kind of group of plants that uh, that always look fantastic. And every, every now and then I'll walk back into one of the greenhouses when the jasmines are in flower or or something else at Brumfelsia or whatever is, is smelling fantastic and it just takes me back and it's uh, and oh, that just makes my, makes my little heart leap. And I just think, oh, oh this, this is I, nice. I love pelagoniums because, <laughs> not only because of their pretty flowers, uh, which is a, a massive plus, um, and the scent, but um, also because of the fact that they very obligingly don't die on me um right from the beginning um they seem to sort of you know plants that kind of liked me um so they hold a very very special place in my heart but the first thing I wanted to ask you Heather is Mm. a lot of people mix up pelagonians and geraniums can you clear that one up for us oh it's the million dollar question (laughs) (laughs) Um, the g word it's the g word yes don't use the g word here I know you've got your genus and your family. So the family is Geraniaceae, basically, mm-hmm. which is obviously where geraniums come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that with pelagoniums, that you have your genus uh, pelagonium and your genus geranium. So they're related, obviously, right. but distantly. So a geranium is your crane's bill, and that's a native herbaceous perennial that's uh, native to the northern hemisphere. Uh, so it's hardy. Mm-hmm. You bung it out in the garden. You can leave it out. It can take over in certain corners. If you're not careful, you get the wrong variety, that sort of thing. Pelagonium is, uh, as I say, related, but it's native to the southern hemisphere. And it's tender because yeah. of that. Uh, it's, it's not a herbaceous perennial. These are succulent or woody shrubs um, and should be treated as such. So, you know, you mm-hmm. ease right back on the watering in the winter, so on and so forth, all sorts of little tricks of the trade to keep them going. But the thing is that they're, they're sufficiently different um, ecologically, if you like. They've evolved over the years. You can't hybridise between the two. And that's oh, always right. that is always a key thing um, when you're mm. sort of separating genuses um so they're they're most definitely two different things and so when people start 
trying to attribute geranium as the common name for pelagoniums. It's it's so wrong. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it does make you angry. Doesn't it's it? just it, and it just confuses the issue so much. It yeah. winds me up just a little bit, um, not least because, of course, people go to garden centres or nurseries or what have you, mm. ask the question, I would like some geraniums for my garden. It opens up a minefield. Are you yeah. talking it's about a... geranium or pelagonium? It's amazing that some of the big you know, companies still use that nomenclature, isn't it? I think they're very quick, some of them, to blame the public, unfortunately, mm. because probably trying to remarket geranium as pelagonium, which they should do, yeah. um, would cost a lot of money. And they just say, oh, well, everybody knows them as geraniums, so we mm. sell them as geraniums. We're doing the public a favour. And you kind mm. of turn around and say, that's such a load of nonsense because you're, you're basically dumbing down the public there is no excuse there really isn't yeah. i'm sorry <laughs> people no just excuse. need to stop it yes stop it now they're pelagoniums exactly. and if you can't say pelagonium then just call them pellies yeah talking about you know. that's what we do that's what we do so within the right environment heather a pelagonium can be quite rugged and tough old things and how is it that we can best replicate those conditions in the uk where they'll be happy and flourish so how do you best replicate south africa yeah in the uk that's basically what we're asking yeah that's what you're asking mm -hmm. so you have to think of of the soil first mm -hmm. of all that they that they grow in so which is a generally it's a pretty poor uh loam based medium that's that's very open it's very free draining okay so they you, you they want to be quite dry mm -hmm. so that's the first thing uh, water management is key to their survival right they need really good light uh so trying to overwinter them in a garage for instance or a, a basement or something along those lines it's it's if you manage to get them through without decent natural daylight, then you're very lucky. Even over winter, um, so they need that good it, light, yeah. They need good light in the winter. Right. More well, than so anything. When, you, when you say a basement or a garage, you mean a basement or a garage with good light? No, I'm saying if you grow them in a basement or a garage without good light, the oh, chances are they'll die. They don't like a sort of dark and dingy kind of environment. They need okay. they need really good natural daylight. So, um, And, of course, in England, we generally in the winter don't have great natural daylight so it's often cloudy you know it's grim yeah. it can be grim mm -hmm. so you've got to give them the best that you possibly can in that respect um and then ventilation also they need good airflow so i'm not saying necessarily you have to keep the the windows and doors wide open to mm -hmm. let the air in because that can often if it's a damp day be be even worse right. but you have to make sure that they have good airflow around them and if they're in a cool environment, let's put it that way, if they're not really being kept warm and cosy, then one of the tricks that uh, we have back at the nursery, because I mean, we're obviously growing in large greenhouses and mm. they cost a fortune to heat. So we can only go to a certain temperature and then above that, we're just like, they have to survive. Mm. Um, so one of the best things that you can do is actually strip off a lot of the leaves and that bears the stems. Bearing in mind the stems are quite succulent. You're not watering them anyway because it's oh. winter. So they don't need the leaves. They're not growing. That's why you do it. Yeah. That is such a good tip. It feels so, so cruel doing it, doesn't it? I know, but you, you have to tell yourself that you're saving its life. Right. 
It might feel cruel. Because so, I've seen pictures of you doing it and it's just like, yeah. oh, I God, know there's two sticks left. Yes. So you're talking about removing all the leaves, Heather? It, it does depend on the variety because obviously smaller leaf varieties are going to be very difficult for you to strip all the leaves off. But things mm. like your zonal, your zonals, your decoratives, the uniques, the regals, all of the larger leafed varieties, the centers, they can all have the majority of their leaves stripped off. So you've just got a growing tip but all yeah. the bigger leaves from lower down are taken right off and you're just left with a naked uh, stem, basically. And what that does, it, it's, it's a two-prong attack. What you're doing is removing any grubby leaves. So mm. there's no no bugs left on there to cause mm. any problems. Yeah. Uh, you're also getting rid of any mildew or any 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 potential uh, mould or phytophthora, botrytis, anything like that from getting in there and doing the damage because often uh, that can be the killer. Uh, mm. If you get if you get some kind of infection like that, it will get mm. into the stem and you'll it'll start black stemming and dying back and so on and so that's it. You might as well throw it out then. Oh yeah. So so you strip all the leaves off. That then, as I say, it bears the stems and it's basically allowing the airflow around those stems and it just makes the most enormous difference. It really does. Gosh, that's such yeah. a great tip. Yeah. I mean, the thing the thing about and um, particularly the centre leaf pelagoniums. What I love about them is that you can keep them indoors throughout the year um, as well as out, obviously. Um, and so they're a really great option, aren't they, for people with no outside space? Oh, um, fantastic. Um, so if you want them specifically as a house plant um, and or either scented leaves or other types of pelagonium, can you tell us in a normal house, no greenhouse or anything like that, how, how, is, how is it best to look after them in terms of sight and uh, heat and all that kind of stuff? Okay, so avoid, although it's very tempting in um, kitchens to have a smelly pelly because, which is my term of endearment for them, um, <laughs> uh, to have your scent of pelagonium in in the kitchen with you because smelly you might be so wanting to use them in cooking or whatever. It's better not because kitchens, a bit like bathrooms, you've got a lot of moisture about. They tend to have quite high humidity and mm. pelagoniums don't like that. Right. So... So avoid the kitchen. But if they're going into a sitting room, a living room, a porch, anything along those lines, absolutely fine. Just have them close to the window or on the windowsill. Again, where they're getting really good sort of natural daylight, not necessarily direct sunlight, but good natural daylight. That's right. really key. Um, and beyond that, then it's just, you know, keep them tidy and keep them well fed. OK, so what do you feed them with? Tomato feed. There isn't such thing as a pelagonium feed. It doesn't have to be anything specific. They just need a, a tomato feed, so tomorite, anything like that that you can get over the counter is absolutely fine. Oh, right. The only time you would use uh, a different kind of feed is their first feed of the season. They need a nice general purpose, a well-balanced feed just to give them a little bit of everything to kickstart them into growing. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, a plant isn't going to use um, a tomato feed properly until it's actually growing strongly. It won't know what to do with it. Do you have to wait for the flowers? No, just just wait for there to be some nice, fresh, young growth. And as soon as you've got some decent leaves coming back on it, then you can switch to the tomato feed. Oh, brilliant. OK, that's inside, but how about outside? We kind of used to see a lot of zonal pelagoniums used as bedding plants, didn't we? Which is a great way to fill gaps in the border in the summer with glorious colour. But... Letitia's a bit mean about zonal, so can you kind of set her straight and let her know uh, your winning <laughs> must-have bedding pelagoniums? Oh, wow. Bedding itself is um, 
I don't know, it's kind of on, it's a bit of a sticky wicket at the moment. It's mm. not exactly massively fashionable, I don't think. And so using zonal pelagums, you do still see it. You do still drive around. And every now and then I'll drive past somebody's front garden and I'll see a border where yeah. they mass planted out with zonal pelagoniums. And it looks absolutely stunning. And you oh, think, yeah. it's fantastic. Totally Somebody, yeah. Yeah. It's due for a revival. Right, you know? yeah. I think so. But I think you do have to use them correctly. So you, the, the key is to mass plant, but with just one colour. Don't mix right. it up. Um, and obviously to find, um, depending on the plants that it's sharing its space with, you've got to colour match it um, and go for, I mean, there are there are some really key, um, there are some really key groups within the zonal. So, for instance, if you if you were to look f- through our catalogue or online, you would find a lot of zonal pelagoniums with the prefix bold um, and the bold series uh, were raised by a gentleman who really knows his stuff mm. they're fantastic plants they're good they're chunky they're very strong growing the short stems who get an awful lot of flower for the space that it takes up mm. um, and they're really good strong flowers they, they tend to be uh, the flowers tend to be shatterproof so if you get a lot of rain or, or bad weather they don't necessarily all go moldy on the spot or just sort of break and shatter all over the oh, okay. all over the garden so you have to pick and choose your varieties depending on um, obviously whether you're bedding out with zonals or whether you're using them in pots or what have you and of course there's so many of them so yeah the choice is endless I yeah possibly... I, th- I think that i think maybe a better way to describe ped- bedding nowadays is is just infill infill <laughs> no but it, absolutely infill gap fillers and yeah. you don't just have to use zonals for that you can do it with the decoratives the uniques and with the scented varieties and the scented varieties make fantastic gap fillers in borders, just for I've, the foliage alone. That's really interesting because I've never thought of putting a scented in my border. It's mm. interesting. Oh. I always think it, oh, it, they have to be in a pot. They just have no. to be in a pot. You, I mean, um, that's really... Do, yeah, and they look great in pots. But if you think Ash of Roses in a mixed border... Mm. Or, yeah, um, you know, Lady Plymouth or Grey Lady Plymouth for that lovely sort of variegated foliage, just as a splash of, of, of a different colour. And things like if you um, at Wisley in front of the, the big greenhouse. Oh, yeah. Tom and Chosen cho- last year. Well, it was chocolate peppermint, actually. Mm. No, I'll both. write you there. Mm. Oh, was it? Wow. Yeah. OK, we're both right there. Oh, yes. He knows more, yes. more than everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's nearer <laughs> to me. I get to it more often. <laughs> That's true. I only go once a year. Um but it's uh, but you know that and it's really effective. So you yeah. can do it. You can do it with a scented. And of course, then you've got the the added sort of the benefit of the f- fragrance again from the foliage. So amazing. But can I ask you about mm. your containerized pelargoniums and what you what sort of potting compost you use? Because is do you have a magic formula? You know, that, and and can can we please can we please have it? Okay, then as it's you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's a difficult one to to say because obviously we have a, a ready mix, as it were. But if you were to mimic, for instance, the mix, uh, yeah, go general to your garden centre, yeah. then you would go and get yourself some John Innes number two mm-hmm. and a general purpose or multi-purpose compost and mix the two together about fifty-fifty. Mm-hmm. So that way, so that way, it's you've got your a good strong loam or soil base to the compost, which the pelargoniums love because mm. they don't like just a straight multi-purpose compost they're going to rot in that yeah um and generally speaking john Innes composts have quite good drainage they have quite a lot of grit mm. um, sort of mixed in with them so that opens the compost up really well 
and a number two has about the right nutrients in it for the pelargonium to get started and then mm. after about three or four weeks you can start feeding it with the tomato feed so if you're repotting in the spring or you're just potting up fresh stock in the spring you wouldn't need to feed as I say for three or four weeks and you wouldn't really need to worry too much about using a general fertilizer because the nutrients are already in the compost brilliant so yeah. so you would then just basically start as soon as they start to grow away nicely you start pouring on the tomato feed and you can't overfeed a pelagonium. Seriously, I was, I was about to say how, how many times? Um, Every time that. you water. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah, if you want, for instance, I mean, Andrew, you've seen the displays at the shows mm. and I can remember once we had a, a chat and you said that you found some of the big, not necessarily our displays, but some of, the, some of them a bit overwhelming. Mm. Um, and I mean, those plants are, you could call them not just the pelagoniums, but anything, the delphiniums or, mm. or whatever. You happen to be walking past. They're, they're on steroids, if you like, yeah. because they are they are so well fed and they are grown mm. specifically for show. So if you want that quality, that standard of plant in your containers in the garden, then you've got to feed them. You've got to. Right. Yeah. I mean, really, if, if people are trying to get uh, the same look that they're seeing in mm. catalogues or at shows or whatever... That is the trick, isn't it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. good. Feed. So a good compost and good feed will keep the plants mm. growing away happily and give you that really full look. But naturally, pelagoniums, like a lot of their kind of Mediterranean-type plants or um, antipodean sort of plants, like lavenders and things, they can get quite rangy, can't they? Because they're shrubs, I guess, or sub-shrubs. Um, yes, exactly. But, so as an antidote to this, could you talk to us a little bit about the technique of pinching out? Can you just sort of demystify that process and tell us when to pinch and, more importantly, where to pinch? Okay, so pinching out is is exactly that. I mean, on a young plant. So, for instance, if we start from if we start from cutting hood, so you've taken mm -hmm. your cutting and it's a single stem. Um, you've struck your cutting and you've waited a few weeks. It's rooted and it's ready to pot up. And once you've potted it up and it's just starting to grow away nicely. So you've got a couple of um, leaf axles there looking looking healthy and young. Mm -hmm. You would literally pinch out the tip, the very growing tip. Oh. So the top leaf and, and the, the newest bud that's starting to form, not necessarily leaf uh, or flower bud, but leaf bud. So you just take the tiny tip out. And by leaving a couple of uh, live axles but below where you're pinching it out, mm -hmm. that will start to branch at that point. Right. So I think so, people so find it hard, don't they? Because they get quite proud of how tall the thing's getting. But would actually... you... No, absolutely. Stop that straight away because mm. it's not about height. It's mm. about body. Right. And so if you, if you start from a young age and you follow that principle right the way through, so every time you start getting from a young plant, two or three branches and they're two or three axles you just take the very tip out mm -hmm. and it's not and just the top. you say sorry that axles for anyone that doesn't the leaf know axles, it's like it's like the arm the nodes yes yeah. exactly so it's the leaf node yeah um but below obviously where you're pinching so you want to have at least two active leaf nodes or axles um so that it can shoot away from those from those nodes basically mm -hmm. and start to form a really nice full bushy shape right and and, and then at some point or another and it's it, it's instinctive you'll know um your plant sort of by now this time of year so we start taking our cuttings in august um and we carry on taking our cuttings right the way through to the end of april oh that's good to um, know okay and your your young plants uh, so this year's show plants will have been uh 
young plants last year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, th- and they would have been pinched out pinched out pinched out as young plants and then potted on and then pinched out again in february mm-hmm. um and then and then i let them go because it takes a, for from from the point of producing a flower bud the very very first sighting of a flower bud it can mm-hmm. take anything up to, to six weeks for that to actually be in full flower Fine. so uh, you have to time it for when you want it to be in full flower. So generally speaking, it'll get they'll get a pinch out or a, a light prune, a bit of a haircut in February, and then after that they're allowed to to get on with it and grow and, and go nuts. Wow. So it's, yeah. That's it's a lot a, of pinching out. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It is, but if you're looking for perfection, that's what you have to do. Yeah. So, so it's, as I say, it's instinctive and, and ultimately um, if you're growing three or four, pots in the back garden it's it's not it doesn't take long no no and it's it's something you know whenever you see a that tip that growing tip coming mm. up you know that if you pinch it you're going to get more bush and that's the important thing to know isn't it yeah exactly and it's not just it's not just the topmost growing tip it's as it starts to branch out it's all of the little sub tips and on the branches as well yeah so every time you pinch out you're creating more more pinchings for yourself. As exactly. well. Yes, but but ultimately, what you've got to think of is you're creating more flower. Yes. Because yeah. of course, every every branch that comes off and every sub branch, if you like, the more stems that you create through pinching out, the more flower you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. As yeah. opposed to just one long gangly shoot with a one single flower at the tip. <laughs> so really, talk, really doesn't of... look good. <laughs> Talking of this floriferousness, uh, mm. let's talk about deadheading now. I'm, okay. I'm presuming that is key to getting lots of flowers over a long period of time, yeah? Yes. So how do you, how often do you deadhead? And for the general public, for people like me, lazy people, how lax can we get away with being on that score if we want lots of flowers? Um, okay, so the thing to remember is that pelagoniums love to flower. And if you take off the the untidy ones, it's going to grow a bit, put another flower head out as quickly as it possibly can. Mm-hmm. But if you leave those old flower heads on, it slows the plant down. It's quite right. surprising. So we tend to deadhead, um, certainly through the show season, we're deadheading every week. Um, and we go through the whole nursery and take all the old flower heads off. Um and that's, I mean, bearing in mind you've got the collection, which is huge. That has to be done every week. Um, all the show plants have to be done every week. Mm. And the sales house and everything, just to tidy that up, we have to do that every week. So it's a lot of deadheading for mm. us. Yeah. Um, if you're doing it yeah, if you're doing it in, uh, in your back garden, and as I say, you've got half a dozen pots and what have you, again, it doesn't take long. And if you keep on top of it, it you're talking minutes. You just literally go out and... You don't have to use scissors or secateurs. You can if you like. But if you, you, you get to know the plant, the best way to do it is to simply pinch the bottom of the flower stem between your fingers and just snap it off and it will break at a natural point. Mm. Um, and, and that way you just literally go and give them a quick ruffle. If some of the heads are looking untidy and, and you really feel that there isn't much... Because with a, with, a, with a pelagonium flower head, you've obviously got the flowers that are open... Mm. Some of the flowers will be over, but you'll often, if you look underneath, have a lot more flowers still to come. Yeah. So if you just tap it and some of the old flowers just drop off, you can often just leave it. Right. And wait for the rest of the buds to open before Mm. you take the whole thing off. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, you don't have to be constantly going out there going, oh, gosh, that single flower is over, that floret. So 
I'll take the whole thing off because that's ridiculous. You just 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 give it a tap. But as and when the flower heads are finished, they've got nothing left to give. You just snap them off at the base. Yeah. And the flower puts out the plant will put out loads more flowers in a blink. I think it is. It's a sort of quite an intuitive thing after a while. You just sort of go out there five minutes, glass of wine, one hand. Exactly. <laughs> Just go around, say hello. How are you? Yeah. Enjoy <laughs> Have a little it. chat. Yes, exactly. In the gloaming. Yeah. Yes. So we've talked a little bit about overwintering, um, mm. but I just wanted to kind of flesh it out a little bit for because I think we should probably start by saying that these plants are known as tender perennials, which means yep. that they're not going to survive any freezing temperatures, and that's why we need to put them somewhere over winter where so we can manage the conditions so there are various ways to do that and um i like taking cuttings um mm -hmm. mainly because the cuttings of scented pelagoniums are the first thing i ever took and they they worked <laughs> so that's very very nice for me um and in fact i've never had a pelagonium cutting fail on me which is Marvelous. quite amazing um so they really are very easy can you, Heather, give, give us a quick rundown of how we take cuttings from your point of view? Because I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there are lots of different ways of doing this. Um, but how uh, do you do them for, for, for the home if you were doing okay. them in your home? OK, so if you were doing them in the home, first of all, you've got to prepare your pot. Um, so you, you would have, I don't know, um, anything from a nine centimetre pot up to a, a 10, 12 centimetre pot. Mm -hmm. uh, you want a sterile mixture. So a seed compost is usually the best sort of um, compost to use. And you would add perlite or grit to that to open it up so you've got really good drainage. Right. Um, you want to make sure it's your compost, your mixture is patted down into the pot reasonably firmly. And then saturate it so that, you know, if you, you squashed your hand down on top, you'd the water would sort of come up. It would overflow through your fingers. So you want Brilliant. it to be really, really wet. You then take your cuttings and your cuttings are, oh, there's, there are, you're right, so, so many different ways to do it. But um, the easiest way and certainly the method that we use are tip cuttings. So mm -hmm. you literally only take a cutting possibly about two inches long. Um, at the most um, mm -hmm. you want to have one or two leaf nodes on that cutting it's probably too long actually um, so it does depend on the variety obviously because anything from um, for instance if you're growing a miniature pelagonium then you would be you'd only be taking something barely half an inch long but right um, in anything up to a, a decorative or, or a scented leaf you'd be inch and a half to two inches long mm -hmm. you want to strip the bottom leaves off so you've got one or two of those nodes are basically left bare. Mm -hmm. And all you want is the growing tip and one leaf at the top right. so that the plant isn't actually using up too much water because mm -hmm. you don't want it. You What you want it, once it's struck into its seed mixture, you want that mixture to dry out quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, all that's doing is literally helping the plant settle in, the cutting settle into the compost with all that water. And then gradually the, you, you, the compost will start to dry out slowly. And then after about four or five days, you would give it another drink. Uh, but you, but really and truly, they don't need an awful lot. So, no. so um, yeah, so you don't need an awful lot of leaf on the cutting. And in a pot between a nine or a 12 centimetre pot, you could get, say, anything, I don't know, five to ten cuttings in a, in a single pot quite comfortably. Cuttings like company. They yes, but is be... that really real? Is that I've always heard that cuttings like company. Is that have you 
I mean, is there any evidence to back that up or is it just a lovely thing? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's genuine. They do. They do. If you, if you can do experiments, if you like at home, stick one cutting on its own in the middle of a 12 centimeter pot and see how it fares to 10 cuttings sitting in the pot next to it or uh, mm. sort of slightly further away and just, and just see how they see how they do in nine times out of 10, it might be that they're absolutely fine. But generally speaking, if there, if you have a, a group of cuttings together, you'll find that you get a really nice uniform uh, rooting. You get really good uh, percentage of success back from so a lot wonderful. of cuttings. Um, and and I, but I think if you um, start reading into the wonderful world of plants and root systems and how they communicate with each other, because they do, they really do like company. They mm. they like to be sat there chatting away to each other. And then once they're once they're um, big enough. Um, they've got a decent root system, so on and so forth. Then you can divide them up into their individual pots. But I like to still keep them quite close to each other. And, and generally speaking, in the nursery as well, always the leaves are touching. Right. So, do you think yeah. it, do you think it's possibly because you're creating some type of competition? Um, they're trying to grow, trying to outdo each other. They considered uh, sense, or, or or is it just friendliness? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll ever know oh, uh, because I've never it, asked. Though. It's nice, it. isn't it? It is nice to think that the, the little ones are talking to each other and keeping each other company. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, one of one of the interesting things is that they can touch the side of the pot. So this is something always to bear in mind. But you never want to take a cutting so long that the bottom of the cutting touches the bottom of the pot because it won't right. root. So uh, that's one of the reasons why you, you don't take such a long cutting. Apart from anything, you don't want it to rot off in a wet compost. But apart from, uh, as well as that, you don't want it touching the bottom. So... And do you do you make a hole for it first, or no, do you just push it in? Never push really? it. Really? Yeah, because <gasps> if you use a dibber and make a hole, you create an air pocket underneath the cutting, and that stops it rooting. Okay. Mm. There you go. Now you know. There you go. Now you know. Absolutely. And the other thing we never use is uh, rooting hormone. We always get asked, "Do you use rooting hormone?" Mm. Absolutely not. Yeah. Don't if you take need the it. plant. No, you don't. If the mm. cuttings are taken at the right time of year then they've got the right hormones. It's all going on. They yeah. don't need additional, basically. So uh, steer clear of the hormones. Yeah. And you bung them straight in. You don't wait for them to callus over or anything at the end. Well, you've got myself and Ursula both taking cuttings in the nursery. And, and Urs does the bulk of it, mm -hmm. to be fair. Because she's doing huge numbers, she will take a lot of cuttings in the morning, all in their very di various different trays and what have you, mm -hmm. and then strikes the cuttings in the afternoon. So quite often... They're sat there for a few hours, right. drying off, basically, forming a bit of a callus. Mm -hmm. Can I just say, uh, I don't. I put mine straight in. Right. Um... And it makes no difference. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, again, but I mean, other people, I've known people um, shove cuttings in glasses of water. They've rooted. Um, I've seen people take peel the leaves off stems and suspend them in water just a leaf by itself wow and that has produced roots oh, so amazing. there are so many different methods see they're wonder plants cuttings. absolute wonder plants these things well, they're just incredibly easy i know which is which is lovely <laughs> no but don't they, exactly they, they make you feel good because they're so easy and, and then you don't have to give it away well, I think I have probably given quite a lot away tonight, actually. But no, never mind. Well, okay. <laughs> Shh, no one's listening. There's only, we've only got three listeners. 
Anyway, so this is cut. <laughs> this is great. If if you haven't got lots of space. Um, or if you want loads of new plants, cuttings are great. Although I suppose with the space thing, you've got to pop the cuttings on, haven't you? But what about if you're just leaving um, your pelagoniums in their pots over winter? Um, what sort of time frame would you um, look at for bringing them into the house? Okay, so really you want to be thinking September. You right. want to start prepare. Yeah, you want to start preparing them for the winter. So uh, come September, although they're probably still looking fantastic, they're still in full bloom and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, you want to end the season, if you like, with a general purpose feed. Right. Um, so that's not the tomato feed. That's, that's like... not. No. So, I mean, unless you're bringing them into a heated conservatory and you want them to carry on feeding right the way through the winter, which is fine. You can do that. Okay. They don't have to have a break. Mm -hmm. They're quite happy just to carry on going. Oh, right. In which case... You just carry on feeding them tomato feed and they carry on flowering and everybody's right. happy. But if they're going somewhere cold mm -hmm. um, or you, or for whatever reason you're having to prepare them for winter, then you, you finish off the season with, as I say, a general purpose feed that gives them a little bit of just sort of a little bit of something just to keep them going through the winter. Mm -hmm. It stops them from flowering, which is then when you would take your cuttings. Right. So as soon as they start producing shoots that don't have flower buds on, that will be your cutting material. Ah, okay. I see. But, uh -huh. so it's really interesting what you say about a heated conservatory. So if you've got, say you haven't got a heated conservatory, but you've mm. got a windowsill with really good light and maybe a radiator or something close by, yeah. could you Just conceivably keep, yeah. keep that going all through the Absolutely. winter? Absolutely. Ah, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Right. So they like it dry. So the fact that it's in a, in a house with central heating or a radiator or something along those lines is not going to be an issue. Right. Some plants struggle, obviously, with a dry environment. Absolutely. Pelagoniums generally don't. They're quite happy. And if they again, if we go back to that sort of dry environment, good natural daylight, so on and so forth, keep them fed with the tomato feed. They will just carry on flowering. It's an ideal so, plant, isn't it, for winter? It's yeah, but the the best ones for winter colour, mm -hmm. if you're wanting just to grow them on windowsills, are the dwarfs and the miniatures, because of course they don't get very big. Yes. So they don't outgrow the windowsill. They just sit there and just flower and never get very big. Um, they're purpose built for it. Yeah. Really. Perfect. So, they, but the key is to feed. Feed, 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 yeah. feed. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. and they won't get exhausted and give up no. the ghost, does it? That's no, amazing. provide. Providing you keep feeding them, then there's no reason for them to be exhausted. They just carry on going. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Okay, so in terms of overwintering, um, mm. we've been we had a bit of a chat on Twitter about this, and a few people have mentioned hanging hanging them up, shaking the soil off them, and hanging them upside down in a dormant state. Mm. <laughs> have you ever done that? Is that a we good haven't. Thing? We haven't. Uh, well, let's put it this way: this generation hasn't. Right. I think my mother-in-law back back in uh, uh, well, just let's just say a very long time ago, mm -hmm. she she did, um, and it works to a degree, but it's a bit extreme, um, and it's. It's not entirely necessary, I think, mm. in this day and age, because we we don't get the winters that we used to get. And I think people have, you know, we we've learned now that actually you can leave them in the compost, um, just ease right back on the watering, strip the leaves off, do what I was saying earlier. Yeah. Um, and that that's that's perhaps a less extreme way of doing the same thing because they're still drying out. Yeah. But you're not being really brutal to the root system. Mm. So they get over it much more quickly in the spring if you're if you're knocking all the soil off stripping them off wrapping them in newspaper hanging them upside down in the loft 
it's going to take you a long time to get that plant back into any kind of um, showable condition. Let's mm. put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think perhaps perhaps be a little bit kinder. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> right, Heather. There's one thing we need to talk about. I've seen you at Chelsea doing the famous white fry clap. So. <laughs> Let's talk no, about. You haven't. Let's no, you haven't. No, you haven't. I have. I've even done it myself. Um, <laughs> let, so let's talk about pests and diseases. What are your enemies, okay. and uh, what methods do you use to keep them at bay? Um, well, the white flag clap is a, a very traditional <laughs> method. <laughs> but um, can you do it for us now? There you go. That's <gasps> it. That's terrifying. Yeah. I, yeah, I know. You didn't seem uh, to hop I, at the same I, time. I, I'm going. I don't know about yeah. the white fly. The, I'm leaving. Yeah, the, the white fly, <laughs> they leave in droves. Um, <laughs> not that we have that many, but uh, they, um, yes. So pests and diseases, the, the two things really from the point of view of, well, I suppose there are three actually, and they're fairly common. White fly is an obvious one. Um, you can't grow pelagoniums really, and not expect to get whitefly at some point or another. But uh, generally speaking, now I think on the market, you don't find very many insecticides anymore because they're slowly all being removed. But what we do have are invigorators, which support the plant's immune system mm. and uh, are more about the plant being able to defend itself. Right. And S SB invigorator uh, is fantastic. Sorry, what was that? Say that again. So S SB SB invigorator it's it is exactly that it gives the the plant a little bit of extra for its immune system um so hence being an invigorator it also has the magical ingredient of ammonia i think it's mm -hmm. ammonia or urea one or the other um if that's the same thing i'm not sure yes you're um and whitefly hate it which is perfect um you've got a bit of soap in there as well uh, so the combination of all of these factors basically means that whitefly just keep a wide, wide berth of pelagoniums when they're sprayed with SB. So and it and it seems to get rid of all stages of the um, of the insect's life cycle. So that's I mean that is absolutely fantastic stuff. You can't Amazing. go wrong with SB. Yeah. Um, it's good for spider mite as well, which you can because you're growing pelagoniums in a very dry, in a very dry environment. Um, you can sometimes find that, you know, if it's in a hot, dry conservatory, you're going to get spider mite, unfortunately. Mm. It happens. An SB invigorator is very good for that as well. Mm. The only thing that SB invigorator doesn't seem to do anything for is green fly, which uh, you will, I think, sometimes get if you've got very, very soft young growth, you will find that there's green fly right. about. Mm. And, and SB doesn't do for that. And unfortunately for that, we have to use... Um, we do have to spray for that. Otherwise, as opposed to the white fly clap, we have the green fly squish. So you just... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, for a small number of plants, I mean, yeah. you can just you go just out and be vigilant them. and squish them. Precisely. Mm. Just remove I think them. that's one of the advantages of uh, pinching out and deadheading, is that you're in regular contact with your plants. Precisely. So, yeah. Yes. Keeping an eye on them. So um, let's try and put together a little starter kit for Pelagonium newbies, shall we? Heather, can you give us... This is going to be difficult. Can you give us your three favourite plants for a novice to try out? Oh, no. Um... <laughs> I knew that was cruel. <laughs> okay, 
So we'll go with one scented, and for that I will choose Asher of Roses. Always. Oh. Uh, it's it's such an amazing plant. It's it smells amazing. You can cook with it, and it looks really pretty. And you can grow it in pots, or you can put it in the ground uh, for our gap filling in the border. Um, and the flowers pretty much go with anything uh, because they're small and delicate and just lovely. So definitely, Ash of Roses. It's a good doer. Can't mm-hmm. go wrong with that one. Um, oof, then it gets a bit difficult. We'll go with a decorative, and I'll choose Ashby because Ooh. that again is incredibly strong, um, very easy, free flowering. It's a big beast. It's a bit of a thug, but um, <laughs> but you learn to love it. And the colour is just outstanding, um, cerise pink with a sort of a black centre, mm. and it's absolutely beautiful. Ooh. And and it oh indeed sounds um, wonderful. And, it is. It's lovely. Um, and it's early as well. So it's a really early. It's one of the first to come into flower in the year. Um, so you have a terrifically long season out of it. It's a fantastic plant. So that would be number two. And then number three, I'm just picturing what we've got in the nursery at the moment. So out of two and a half thousand varieties. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. That's immense. I now have to pick. I have to pick a third a third easy going. And I'm going to pick a species pelagonium, actually, oh, for brilliant. number three. And I'm going to pick Austral, which oh, is which gorgeous. is one of the few species that doesn't come from Africa. It actually comes from Tasmania, um, and uh, it's borderline hardy, which is quite interesting. So we've had it down to minus two in hanging baskets. Oh wow! So against the wall of the house and just allowed to sort of just to sort of be quite dry, but against the wall of the house, it's it's stayed out all winter. So um, a mild winter that is. Mm. So that's a really good one. So Pelagonium austral. A uh, beautiful foliage, lovely dark green with a sort of bronzy red underside to the leaf. Mm. And then the flowers are small and delicate and white and they just sit on top. And the contrast between the, the foliage and the and the flower is beautiful, beautiful oh, variety. Yeah. Lovely. So oh, those would be my wonderful. three. Wonderful. Thank you. I shall put down the, the names of all of those in our show notes. And um okay. presumably we can get them all from you, right? Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yes. Now I've got to pick you up on something there, um, Heather, because I heard you mention that with Atari Roses you could cook with it. Now Yes. You do a bit of cooking and also cake baking because there's the famous Pelly cake. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so Pelly cake came about by um, experimentation, if you like. So, as a family, uh, we've <laughs> always made cakes using the leaves from pelagoniums. Um, but I find it frustratingly messy. So, mm. I experimented. We bought a little still and I experimented um, distilling just some different varieties of pelagoniums to, to just try out different lemons, different rose flavors, mm-hmm. uh, the peppermints, and so on and so forth to see what we could do with it. And I, I made a pelagonium cake, is if you, if you happen to be lucky enough to have your own still and distill the right variety and get the right oil which is more complicated than it sounds because you have to pick the leaves, believe it or not, at the right time of day. Otherwise, oh the flavour changes. Yes. Um, so so we use Radula, which is a rose-flavoured pelagonium, but it's it tends to be quite citrusy in the morning and rose-flavoured in the afternoon. Oh, and the longer you leave it, yes, yeah, it's, it's really peculiar. Um, but the longer you leave it, the, the flavour changes during the course of the day. So I have to pick them later on in the afternoon and then distill them. And then that oil 
will uh, be used just a few drops of that oil will flavor just a regular victoria sponge oh, it's too but delicious. i then then it is just there's nothing regular about it it's absolutely to die are for. you are you selling this oil uh sadly we 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 can't produce enough to make it commercial but what i do is make the cake and just hand out slices to people Aww. should they come and ask and um, one day i hope it's it's in the plans to uh to to go sort of a bit more commercial but we've got to perfect growing large numbers of these things and 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 actually harvesting it that's yeah. that's the thing that takes the time it sounds a bit like something one might want to dab behind one's ears or on my one's wrist as well well why not i mean <laughs> pelagoniums pelagoniums are used in the in the uh in the cosmetics industry mm. um and there's such an enormous amount of, or such an enormous number of flavors yeah. um, and fragrances within the family. But certainly, the thing about one of the questions I always love to ask when I'm giving a lecture is, uh, what makes a lemon smell like a lemon? Mm, and yeah. and you usually end up with a room of people who are who are so stunned with the question they they don't quite know where to come back from that and so um so you go on to explain well it's all to do with the volatile chemicals that are either in the leaf the fruit or the flower mm. and, it, and in pelagonium's case rather than just having two or three different volatile chemicals uh making a sort of the combination of which will make up a lemon a lavender a rose or a rosemary or a peppermint or spearmint or whatever pelagoniums have over 120 volatile chemicals wow in the leaves and it's the combination of those chemicals that give it this massively wide variety of flavors and of course that's not just great for um for eating that if people had a bit more imagination in the cosmetics industry dare i say it, they've <laughs> got they've got this huge expanse of different flavors that they could start mixing up and and uh, making beautiful fragrances and hand soaps and mm. and so on and so forth out of but uh, they they seem to stick to good old graviolins all the time mm. so, and then call it geraniums and then call it geranium so i have no sympathy none whatsoever. <laughs> you've just got to pioneer your own uh, scent yeah. factory uh, that, yes. there's another job yeah. for you huh? yes exactly I'll, uh, on day eight I will do that. <laughs> day nine maybe of the week <laughs> yes. um uh so i do you mind i hope you don't mind we've got a few questions for you from yeah. our listeners um Good. uh so the first one is from somebody called robin she's one of my newsletter subscribers and she says if you could choose one pelagonium as a houseplant what could it be it would have to be again a scented leaf and it would be um, there's a group which are all quite similar, but I'll go with fragrance. Uh, it's got a lovely fresh fragrance to it, uh, but it has a wonderful habit because it, it cascades ever so gently. It doesn't get massively tall, so it's perfect for tabletop, um, oh, I, either wonderful. in a sitting room or in a in a porch or something along those lines. Or, or by a bed. Or, or even by a bed. Uh, again, bearing in mind you've got to have decent light, but and it. And it, it just, it's got the prettiest delicate foliage and pretty, pretty little sprays of white flowers. It's very, very, it's very pretty um, and it's very delicate in its habit and its shape and um, and it's just delightful and it's, and it's just like natural air freshener. Mm, oh, it smells gorgeous. Bliss. 
That's lovely. We've got another question here. This one's from Chris, who's another one of Letitia's newsletter friends. He wants to know what he's doing wrong overwintering his scented pellies. He says he cuts them back and they always display enticing new growth in the spring. And then he waters them and puts them out, at which point they start to rot off before they regrow. What could he be doing wrong, do you think? I would say, first of all, um, how hard is he cutting them back? in the? If he's cutting them back in the autumn, really, um, so the, the normal course of events would be you take about a third off in the autumn, strip the leaves, keep it dry um, and frost-free, obviously, mm. a little bit warmer if you can. And then in the spring, you want to repot. So you're not. So although you can you can keep them in the same pot, you want to knock it out of that pot and get rid of uh, about an inch off the top and a few inches at least, a couple of inches off the bottom, and give it some fresh compost. Right. Generally, when we do that. We try and sort of, you know, fluff up the roots and knock a bit of the old compost off from around it. Not being too rough, but just pat it gently and sort of scruff up the, le- the the roots a little bit so you're getting rid of some of the old compost. Put some fresh compost back in the pot and resettle the plant back in that with some fresh um, top dressing. And then uh, give it a couple of weeks. Give it uh, that way. So you water it in, sorry, when it's just not a not a soak, but a little bit of water when you repot it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then a couple of two or three weeks later, give it a general feed. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it's warm enough, then then you put it outside. So I would say probably what's happening is the plant is growing back, but then it's exhausted, and because right. it's it's getting put outside, uh, maybe maybe he just needs to Chris needs to repot and then think about giving it some general purpose feed, and and then just wait and see what happens really before you put it outside. You want it to be growing away quite nice and strongly before you put it out. Right. What Rather temperature than... should it be up to at night before you put it outside? Do you think? Oh, five. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. So long as it's above five degrees. I mean, if you think sort of, yeah, you know, we can still get frosts in May. Mm. Um. So you really, normally speaking, you would want to leave it at least till mid-May, depending on what part of the country you're right. in. If not, then the end of May. Mm-hmm if you're in a frost pocket. So once those sort of nightly temperatures are, are steadily sort of four or five degrees above freezing, mm-hmm. then you should be okay right. the plant out. So it's actually quite wait quite a long time, probably longer than a lot of people think, actually. Well, yeah, because then you get a frost or a yeah. cold night. or And if they're soft, then that's, that's it. Yeah, hold your horses. Lovely. Thank mm. you. Oh, absolutely amazing. Heather, thank you so much. I feel completely as if you've taken a jug and filled me up with lots of new knowledge <laughs> and tips. It's amazing. So much tippage, yeah. um, which is exactly what we're about. And you've basically spilled all the Pelagonian beans for well, us. Well, we want everybody to grow beautiful Pelagoniums. Yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, it's you know. so inspiring. Um, so where can we find you online? Uh, it's uk. Brilliant. Um, I'm on Twitter as Fibrex Nurseries and Instagram as Fibrex Nurseries. It's um, it's all Fibrex, Fibrex, Fibrex. Okay, I will link to that in the show notes. And if what if people want to come and visit uh, the National Collection? Is that open to the public? Yes, absolutely. It's open to the public from May the first. It's free of charge. Um, and uh, but beyond that, you're welcome to come to visit the nursery anyway. Amazing. Um, although we although we say the National Collection is open from the first of May. It's only because it hasn't been set out properly yet. It's there. And if people really want to, the glasshouse doors are open on a warm day. So you're welcome to walk in and have a nose about. It's just not set up properly yet. So um, 
they haven't got their posh labels on and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but, I'm sure um, it doesn't matter. Um, what about, have you got any shows coming up? Are you uh, at Chelsea yeah. this year? Oh, of contention. <laughs> <laughs> so the C word. Oh, um, we aren't. For the first time in 55 years, <gasps> we aren't doing Chelsea. Yeah. But there is a there is a good reason for that, and it's because we're having a super big, fabulous Pelly party at the nursery a couple of weeks later, Ooh. and uh, and we just didn't feel that we could do both justice. So I'm afraid Chelsea got the shove this year. Well, yeah. and, I think if you've done bash. 55 years on the trot, I think yeah. that's okay, Heather. We're, we're allowed <laughs> a year off, aren't we? Yeah, I think aren't so. we? Please. Yeah, yeah. Will there be Pelly cake at the at the weekend? Oh yes, there'll be Pelly cake and Pelly fudge. Right. Oh we've fudge. Got, we've got, oh yes, uh, we've got smelly Pelly jelly. Um, <laughs> yes. This is just sounds like the best party it's, in the uh, entire oh, world. You got to come. Well, like, how like, does how does so. one get an invitation? One does not need an invitation. One may just turn up. No, um, really. Yeah, seriously, yeah. absolutely. It's completely free. Um, the only thing we are we are asking a small amount of money, five pounds per seat, are for the lectures. And um, we have twelve lectures and workshops over the course of the weekend, covering a wide variety of subjects. One of which is with yours truly about cooking with pelagoniums. And wow. um, if you could just let us know that you want a ticket for that, then you can either book it online or give us a ring or email or however. That so sounds absolutely amazing. I will link to all of that. Linkity link. It will happen. Linkity link. Fantastic. Um, thank you so Heather, much. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It's been an absolute delight. And that's it for us for this information-packed episode of the Virgin Gardener podcast. Thank you so much, Heather, for joining us and for giving us such a wealth of detail about the wonderful world of pelagoniums. Yes, and don't forget to check the show notes on Letitia's website for details of any specific pelagoniums we've mentioned today, along with how and where you can find Fibrex and a national collection. We'll be back soon with more tips and tricks for your garden, so we hope you can join us then. She's Letitia. Oh, and he's Andrew. You can find me at letitiamacloof.com. That's L-A-E-T-I-T-I-A-M-A-K-L-O-U-F dot com. And I'm at gardensweedsandwords.com. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode of the Virgin Gardener podcast, then what would be really useful and really helpful is if you went to wherever you get your podcast from and put a five-star review on, which basically says that Andrew and Letitia are marvellous. Their choice of guests is sensational. And what we really want is more and more and more of this. We want so much of this podcast that we want to bathe in it as if it was slightly warmed ass's milk. Um, so there you go, the Virgin Gardener podcast, something for everybody, uh, whether you be gardener or baby fancier. I love it.